Amen. Thank you, Chad. Well, good morning, Harbor City Church. It's great to see you all this morning. Um, it's always a pleasure to come and talk about the gospel and come and talk about Jesus. Uh, it is a beautiful thing. So greetings in the name of Christ. And greetings from Redeemer Orange County. They send their love and their prayers to you all. Uh, and if I may, uh, would you pray for my wife just momentarily? Um, she's home with five children right now, so you made it possible for me to be here. So I know she's getting inundated by little kids. Well, um, one of the things about me is that I'm normally a teacher, so my style is maybe a little bit more academic. I don't, that may appeal to some of you and others not. I just give that as a shout out. Um, I've printed my sermon this morning just to make sure that I don't go over time. And I'm excited to teach you about Abraham and Abraham's relation to the gospel this morning. So uh, as was said when I was introduced, I worked as a school administrator for, I've worked as a school administrator for the last 10 years. And I'm sure it will come as no surprise to any of you that many of my students, families, and parishioners are actually plagued by anxiety. I have to imagine that many of you, like me, here have a similar struggle. We're living in an age of anxiety. And it's not getting better, it's getting worse. This is ironic because the promise of the secular age was supposed to be that once we got rid of that angry God in the sky who judges us and makes claims upon our lives, that everything would get better. But culture has largely dumped that God, and as far as anxiety is concerned, everything seems to be getting worse. By the way, we're no less religious than we were before. It's just that we've transferred our hardwired religious impulse from a vertical orientation to God to a kind of more of a quest for righteousness that is horizontal and maybe seemingly more attainable. More and more, I'm counseling students through panic attacks and away from suicide. I mean, this is escalating astronomically. It's noticeable. More and more, I'm counseling parents not to be so anxious about where their child will go to college. And that one C on a test doesn't actually mean that their child's life is over. More and more, I talk to parishioners who treat their careers like they're everything or make an idol out of their marriage and their kids. And listen, I'm not standing up here saying that I'm immune to these sorts of things. They have their pull on me too. We scour the latest parenting books for the correct approach to child rearing as if raising the perfect adult might actually redeem us. And we look down our noses at others whose kids don't behave well. We invest existential value in eating right or clean which is a strikingly moralistic word. And the latest diets often command more attention than do our Bibles or the poor. We get sucked into social media for hours upon hours in order to cultivate a perfect image of ourselves or win arguments and defend the truth as we see it. And God forbid we become the subject of someone's hot take on Twitter. We talk about saving the environment with all the fervor of a religious ecstatic, and we even have child saints to lead the way for us. And truth be told, we often study theology and engage in religious practice merely to show how smart we are and to look down our noses at others. And what does it get us? Not much. At the end of the day, very often we're running ourselves ragged. 
to cultivate an image or meet a standard that we can't possibly maintain because we're flawed and imperfect. And in the game we're playing, the goalposts are constantly moving. But we can't help ourselves because it's all that we sort of know how to do. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not up here saying that any of these things are necessarily bad in and of themselves. Eating a healthy diet is a good thing. Raising children that are kind is good. Studying theology is good. Working hard at your job is a good thing. It's just that when we make any of these things ultimate, when we prioritize them in such a way that we put our trust in them to overcome our sense of guilt and shame, we find out really fast that they don't fix us. And they often make us worse. Which leaves us either full of misplaced pride or so anxious that we don't want to get out of bed in the morning. I love the way that the late David Foster Wallace said it in his 2005 graduation speech. This is what he said, quote, Everyone worships. If you, if you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you'll never have enough. Never feel you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing you will die a million deaths before they plant you. On one level, we all know this stuff already. It's been codified as myths, proverbs, cliches, bromides, epigrams, parables, the skeleton of every great story. The trick is keeping the truth up front in our daily consciousness. Worship power and you will feel weak and afraid and you will never, or you need ever more power over others to keep that fear at bay. Worship your intellect being seen as smart, and you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out, and so on, end quote. You see, the bottom line is, we all want to know that we're loved, that we are enough. We want our things and achievements to validate us, but they can't. And so we're whipping ourselves into a frenzy, and this is our new cultural religion, and just about everyone knows that it's not working, but no one's letting on. You might call it performancism, the idea that we're defined by what we do and that we do things in order to make ourselves feel like we are enough. The old scriptural way of talking about this was we all want to be righteous. We all want to be loved. We all want to be enough. And none of us is immune from these desires. And yet we're flawed and imperfect, marred by sin and often racked with guilt. And even if we do fool some of the people some of the time, even the best of us can't sustain our attempts at self-justification for very long. We need someone to tell us that we're okay. And we work and we work and we work to make things okay. But all we get for our performancism is more anxiety. And so we skip from thing to thing, looking for salvation among the goods of the world, which never seem to satisfy. But the good news is that we don't have to perform in order to be loved. Christ on the cross has done for us what we could not do for ourselves. And as a result, we are not defined by what we do 
but rather by who Christ is. And Christ is enough. So our scripture text for today comes from Romans chapter 4, verses 1 through 5. Let me pray for us, and then we'll read God's word together. Heavenly Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be pleasing unto you. Be with us now by the presence of your Holy Spirit to equip us for the good work that you have set before us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hear now the word of the Lord from Romans chapter 4, verses 1 through 5. What shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but trusts in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. This is the word of the Lord. So before we talk about this passage, I have to do a little quick contextual review of Romans 1 through 3. Um, So in Romans 1, if you've read it and you remember it, Paul talks about the fact that everyone is responsible for knowing God and knowing that God is worthy of our worship. But he says that we all turn away towards idols, worshiping created things rather than our creator. And the result of that turning away from God, of the disordering of our loves, is that all manner of sin just kind of explodes out into the world. And then in chapter 2, Paul reminds us that a way to be justified, or the way to be justified before God, is to do the works of the law perfectly. As he says in Romans 2.6, God will render to each one according to his works. Those who do good will receive glory and honor and eternal life, and those who do evil will experience the wrath of God, the just punishment of God. And then at the beginning of chapter 3, Paul takes a bunch of extended quotations from the Old Testament and strings them together in order to demonstrate that there is no one who is righteous, not even one person who meets the standard of the law. And then we get to Romans 3, 21 through 27, which is arguably the holy of holies of the New Testament. Here's what he says in Romans 3, 21. But now, right, this is after all that history, but now the righteousness of God has been revealed apart from the law, Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Well, there's a lot writing on that, but now, right? Paul is saying something new has shown up in history, namely Christ. And what Christ does at the cross has made possible a new kind of access to righteousness, not based on perfectly keeping the law, 
Now faith will be the means by which the righteousness of Christ is received by humans. They will not generate their own righteousness, but will instead participate in Christ's righteousness. It will come to us from outside. This is a radical new understanding of how righteousness works. And so Paul asked the rhetorical question that every observant Jew would be asking at this point in his argument. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? To which Paul's answer is a very strongly worded, by no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. So how does this work? Let's now go back to our scripture portion for today in Romans chapter 4. Paul's point here is to demonstrate that what he's describing is no abrogation of the Old Testament. He's not overturning it and doing something new. This is not some novel doctrinal invention as though God had changed his mind midstream, but rather a fulfillment of what was always expected. And Paul uses Abraham as his example. He wants to show us that Abraham was not justified, that is, he was not declared righteous in the sight of God because of his own righteousness, but rather because he believed God would do what God had promised to do, namely, bless all nations through his offspring. To see how this works, we need to go back to God's original covenant with Abraham. So let's look at Genesis 12. And here, uh, Abraham's still called Abram. So now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. So when I teach this to my students, I say the Abrahamic covenant has three parts. Number one, he's going to make Abraham a great nation. Number two, he's going to give him a great name. And number three, in Abraham's offspring, all families of the earth will be blessed. And it's that third piece that Paul is focusing on here in Romans 4. As we continue into Abraham's story, what we see is that Abraham receives this promise, but then he starts to worry about the promise. He's like, wait, how are you going to pull this off? I don't have any children, and Sarah and I are quite old. So he starts to question God. Like, how is this going to happen? And then we get to Genesis 15, and here's what we see. And God brought Abram outside, and he said, Look toward the heaven. Number the stars, if you're able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And here's the key line. And Abraham believed the Lord, and the Lord counted it to him as righteousness. So what's the thing that Abraham believes? Abraham in particular believes that God will give him numerous offspring from his own family. In particular, he's believing that God will give him Isaac, a son from his union with Sarah, even though Sarah is barren. And that belief, that trust that God will do the thing, is the thing that's counted to Abraham as righteousness. And here the word that's used is logizomai. And this word has a particular connotation. It's like an accounting term. It's like somebody putting a, a credit onto your ledger or money in your bank account. And, and this is what Abraham, Abraham's trusting God will make this happen. And because he trusts that God will do it, there's righteousness credited to his account. Okay, so there are a few things that we need to stop here and notice. 
that I think Paul wants us to notice. Number one, this covenant with Abraham is unconditional. It's not an if you do this, then I will do that, or it's not a quid pro quo. There's nothing Abraham has to do. It's simply a promise that's given to him. All the action here is taking place on God's part, right? God's making a promise. He's saying, I'm going to carry it out. Number two, and this is perhaps the more controversial point for Paul's contemporaries, Abraham is not perfect. Uh, If you remember the story of Abraham, we've already seen that he lies to Pharaoh about Sarah being his wife. And then moreover, like after this, in chapter 16, right after chapter 15, where he's counted as righteous, he goes on to like not trust the promises of God and to sleep with his servant Hagar to try and bring about the promises on his own strength. Okay? In short, with respect to the moral law, Abraham is like you and me. He is an undeserving sinner. The point being, he couldn't have been singled out as a result of his own righteousness. No, he was simply called by God and given this gracious and loving promise. All he did was believe it. And he didn't even do that perfectly as the incident with Hagar reveals. Third, Abraham receives this promise, the promise of the Abrahamic covenant, before he was told to circumcise uh, anyone, right? That comes in chapter 17, five chapters later. So this covenant precedes the ceremonial Jewish law. And it also happens after Abraham was obedient to going and sacrificing, or at least attempting to sacrifice Isaac in chapter 22, right? So it's not about his obedience. And lastly, This is hundreds of years before the giving of the Mosaic Law at Mount Sinai. So, faith as the means for receiving righteousness, this is what Paul's talking about, preceded every single form of law-keeping that we see in the Old Testament. This was prior to all those things. So with this background in mind, let's go back to our text for today. Back to Romans 4. Look at the text again. What made Abraham special? Paul asks, was it his works? No, if he had worked, then God would have owed him something as wages. But Paul notes that Abraham did not work to gain the blessings of the covenant. In fact, Paul says something even more shocking and radical. Not only did Abraham not do works, but Abraham was ungodly. Sit with that for a moment. This is the patriarch of patriarchs, the sin qua non of Judaism the man who Jews would look up to as their moral exemplar. And here Paul is saying that he's ungodly like the rest of us. It's hard for us to even imagine a modern-day equivalent to to this statement, and it would have been very shocking to Paul's audience. And yet Paul is convinced of this. But this is the least of Paul's troubles. There's an even bigger issue here, and maybe some of you have uh, recognized it. How is it that a holy and righteous God justifies someone who is ungodly? That violates all of our known principles of justice. Doesn't that violate the moral law? Does this mean that we have no idea what the concepts of right or wrong even mean? Like, does God have a different playbook? After all, God himself said in Deuteronomy 25 that Israelite judges must justify the righteous and condemn the wicked. Or in Proverbs 17.5, he had said, 
acquitting the guilty and condemning the innocent. God detests them both. Uh, John Stott, the great preacher and uh, New Testament theologian, put it like this in his commentary on Romans. How on earth can Paul affirm that God does what he forbids others to do, that he does what he says he will himself never do, that he does it habitually, and that, even, that he even designates himself the God who justifies the ungodly, or he might say, who righteouses the unrighteous. It's preposterous. How can the righteous God act unrighteously and so overthrow the moral order, turning it upside down? It's unbelievable, or rather it would be, if it were not for the cross of Christ. Without the cross, the justification of the unjust would be unjustified, immoral, and therefore impossible. The only reason God justifies the wicked is that Christ died for the wicked. You see, friends, the gospel is that in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting our sins against us, That's that word logismi again, right? Not accounting our sins against us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is the great exchange that takes place at the cross. God satisfies the demands of justice in taking our punishment upon himself and we get his righteousness imputed or counted to us in return when we believe in Christ. And this is the crux of our passage today. Paul says this is exactly what Abraham was looking forward to when he believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. The faith of Abraham looked forward in time. He didn't know exactly how it was going to play out, but he trusted that God would do it. And this is exactly what we see. In Christ, God fulfills his promise given in the Abrahamic covenant to bless all nations. Christ is the offspring of Abraham dying on the cross, having lived a perfect and righteous life, having kept the whole law, being obedient unto death, and sacrificing himself for our sin. That is the ultimate object of Abraham's faith. Paul expands on this theme in his letter to the Galatians. Let's look at Galatians 3. Here's what he says. Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law? Or by hearing with faith, just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham. It's an amazing claim. Saying, in you shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. But we don't have to just take Paul's word for it, that this was what's going on. We have an even better witness to this fact. Uh, we have Jesus himself testifying to the fact that Abraham was waiting for him. Here's what he says in John chapter 8. Jesus is debating with the Pharisees. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad So the Jews said to him, you're not yet 50 years old. Have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Jesus uses the name of God for himself, but he's he's saying Abraham in eternity 
looking down, watching Jesus do what he was going to do at the cross. I imagine him just like shouting for joy. Oh my gosh, he did it. He's fulfilled the promise. Just like he said thousands of years later. He gets to see his own salvation accomplished as part of the promise originally given to him. I can only imagine he's shouting, God is faithful. He's kept his promise. He's fulfilled his covenant. So what does all of this mean for us? How might this help us with all of our kind of anxious performancism that I was talking about at the beginning? I want to point out three things to three different audiences. Because I don't know you guys. Um, I haven't had time to spend with you yet, but... I can imagine who might be sitting here. Um, the first thing I want to say is to those of you that are befuddled or confused, remember that God is faithful. He will do it. You don't need to try harder to be saved. It's all been done. You need to only rest and believe in the surety of what Jesus has accomplished on your behalf. To the self-satisfied, Remember that God justifies the ungodly. You didn't get here because you were great. Neither did I. We got here because we needed help and we were trapped in sin. And God came to rescue us. So there is no occasion for boasting. We are more sinful than we ever imagined and more loved than we ever dared think possible. And to those of you who maybe don't know Christ this morning... You don't have to continue to be anxious, which I know is easier said than done. Because in Christ, you can be enough. He loves you. He died to rescue you. He knows everything about you. So what are you waiting for? So in closing, uh, I wanted to talk a little bit about a book that my friend David wrote. Um, guy's name is Dave Zoll. He doesn't know I'm doing this. He lives in New York or Virginia. But uh, he wrote this book called Seculosity, and I'm indebted to him for a number of the things that I've been talking about. I would recommend it to you. I have it up here at, at the front if you're interested. But um, he talks in this book a lot about the different ways that we in our culture are attempting to self-justify our own righteousness. Uh, at the end of the book, he tells a story where he talks about his wife's father. His wife's father once got caught in a riptide in the ocean and swept out to sea. And he was only miraculously rescued and resuscitated by some triathlete who just happened to be out there in flippers and was swimming by and, and grabbed him and took him in and resuscitated him on the shore. And when David recounts the story at the end of his book, he says this, quote, the reason people drown in a riptide is that they panic and they swim against the current toward the shore. And the force of the water not only exhausts their energy, it actually drags them under. The key to surviving a riptide is counterintuitive. You actually have to relax and go with the flow. Instead of exerting yourself, you have to allow the current to take you out to sea. And eventually the tidal forces will settle down and, and dump you in a safer spot. But if you try to exert yourself, you'll drown. And so in an odd twist, your life quite literally depends on you letting go of control. 
David continues on. A similar dynamic applies to the performancism in which we are currently drowning. Our attempts to engineer our own salvation backfire, and they do so dramatically. When our initial strokes get us nowhere, instead of reevaluating or giving up, we start paddling in a different direction with the same results. I hate to say it, but the only life raft capable of reaching the world drowning in sin will not be inflated with anything that we do or don't do, but with what God himself has done and is doing. Which in turn reminds me of one of my favorite stories from one of my all-time favorite TV shows. Uh, Don't blame me if you don't like this show, but uh, there's an episode of The West Wing titled uh, Noel, and it's just beautiful. In that episode, one of the characters relates a story to another character who'd been struggling with addiction and anxiety. Here's how it goes. This guy is walking down the street when he falls in a hole. The walls are so steep he can't get out. A doctor passes by, and the guy shouts up, Hey, can you help me out? And the doctor writes a prescription, throws it down into the hole, and moves on. Then a priest comes along, and the guy shouts up, Father, I'm down in this hole. Can you help me out? And the priest writes out a prayer and throws it down in the hole and moves on. Then a friend walks by. Hey, Joe, it's me. Can you help me out? And the friend jumps in the hole. Our guy says, Are you stupid? Now we're both down here. And the friend says, Yeah, but I've been down here before. And I know the way out. Church, God has jumped down in the hole with you. And God is swimming by with flippers when you're lost out at sea. Will you trust him? He is faithful and only he can save. This has always been the case. It's been the same, I'm happy to report, since the beginning of time and since all eternity. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for Jesus. Thank you that he died to take our sin so that we might have his righteousness. Help us to rejoice with your servant Abraham that you have made a way for us to receive blessing even though we have turned from you. Calm our restless and anxious souls this morning with your love and grace and teach us to walk in your ways by the power of your Holy Spirit through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Chris.